uh, the text that we're in this morning, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, is sort of the final conclusion of that long passage that begins somewhere in Hebrews chapter 4 and ends here at 10, verse 18, as the author of Hebrews is, is there explaining, as we've been seeing for several weeks, the priestly work of Jesus on behalf of those who have come to him by faith and what he accomplishes for us as great high priest, as perfect sacrifice for sins. Last summer, uh, I spent the majority of the summer months, June and July, uh, even into August, digging in my backyard. When we bought our house um, about two and a half years ago, the whole backyard was gravel, all of it, which is really, really nice if you uh, only ever want to pull weeds and not ever have to do anything and don't have children that like to play in the grass. But we have three, now four children in our house, and uh, as much as we uh, like uh, maintenance-free backyard, we also wanted to have some grass for the girls to play in. And green, let's just be honest, it looks a little bit prettier, right? So all last summer, I'm digging, I've got a, I've got a, a pickaxe, and I'm digging and trenching out uh, 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 irrigation uh, lines and moving gravel out of the way and all that sort of thing. And I, and I got to a point in the middle of digging in my backyard where I thought, you know what, let's just fake it. Let's just, get, let's just go do the sin lawn thing. Let's do the astroturf thing. I don't, I don't know if I'm tired of digging in the dirt. I don't know if I really want to mow the grass all that much. I'm not sure that I want to deal with having to water it and fertilize it and all of that sort of. Let's just do the astroturf. Astroturf is full of false promises. Astroturf promises the look and feel of real grass without all of the maintenance. It seems like a wonderful thing. The only problem is that astroturf, synthetic lawn, tends to go flat over time. It gets tramped on and then it's just, and it obviously looks fake after time. It isn't as soft as the salesman would like you to think it is under your bare feet. And if you live in a place with a lot of sun, like New Mexico, that stuff gets hot as blazes in the summer sun in the afternoon. It may be pretty to look at, but astroturf ain't the real thing, folks. It's all style and no substance. And so also with Christianity, there is often the false assumption that we can have all the benefit of relationship with God just by doing the stuff that looks good. Just by doing all the externals, by putting on the appearance of Christianity, by living with religious style over the faithful substance of obedience. There is a kind of religiosity, there is a kind of life of worship that is all style and no substance. Today in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, we see Jesus, the obedient and victorious Son, the one who gives his life as a sacrifice so that we can live in free and loving obedience to God. We see in these verses that God's desire for obedience, for our, our heart felt love and devotion to him more than sacrifice, more than external actions, is fully lived out in our place by Jesus. Jesus lives obediently where we could not. And he then gave his life as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The point of the main idea of Hebrews 10, 1 to 18 this morning is this, that Jesus does what the law could not so that you can delight in doing God's will. Jesus is not style, all style and no substance. He is all substance. To give a style of living to those 
would follow him by faith. I want for us this morning to know the freedom that we have in Jesus to obey God and to pursue obedience to him as a joyous response to relationship with God. Not obeying God as external predictors or indicators of religiosity, but doing the external bits of worship, obedience, following Christ, following God, out of love and freedom to do so because of what Jesus has done for us. Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able to read Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18? The author of Hebrews writes this. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, uh, if we're careful and pay close attention, we can find a sermon in four sentences. A sermon in very uh, four very short sentences. There are sort of four paragraphs, four uh, sections in this passage of Scripture that we're in. First, verses 1 through 4, then verses 5 through 10, then 11 through 15, and then, uh, excuse me, 11 through 14, and then finally verses 15 through 18. And, and the last sentence of each of these sort of paragraphs kind of gives us the whole flow of what the author of Hebrews is saying. So, chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 10. By the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Verse 14. By a single offering of Jesus, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 18, and where there is forgiveness of sins, of these sins, there is no longer any offering to be made for them. Let us look at the sermon in four sentences. Don't you wish I'd give a sermon in just four sentences? You know me better than that by now. First of all, from verses 1 through 4, it is impossible for the blood of animal sacrifices to remove sins. 
We've been seeing this over the last several weeks in Hebrews. The repeated offerings of sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem was never effective to remove sins from people. It was only effective for covering over them for a period of time. The law, the law which God gave to offer sacrifices for sins, is ultimately ineffective for removing them. They cannot, the word is expiate, those sacrifices cannot take away sins from the soul, from the conscience of the person who has committed them. Here in verse 1 of chapter 10, the author continues in this typological approach to interpreting the significance of the temple in Jerusalem and its relationship to Christ. The temple is a type, Jesus is the antitype. The temple is the shadow, Jesus is the substance. Now the law itself, being a type of the sort of covenant that Jesus will come to bring, doesn't have the substance of new covenant realities, only a shadow of them. There's a passing over of sins under the law, which is a shadow, which is a, a, a prefiguring, if you will, of the kind of total release from sin that comes in the new covenant. But under the old covenant, the sins are never fully taken away. They're only passed over. By this, the shadows, the law, what takes place in the temple, cannot bring what only the substance can, cannot bring a clean conscience to the mind of the worshiper. If the law could cleanse the conscience by removing sins, the sacrifices that were offered year after year for the covering of sins in the temple would have stopped. They would have ceased to be, the author of Hebrews says. If the sacrifices actually could do what the hearts of the worshipers most needed, we would have done them once and never again. But alas, those sacrifices continued on and on, over and over, year after year, even into the day of Christ's appearance, his incarnation in the flesh. Verse 3 of chapter 10 is clear. These sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. They're not an annual reminder of freedom from sin. They're an annual reminder of the presence of sin. And this is so because, as verse 4 tells us, the blood of bulls and goats, of lesser parts of the created order, lesser than the crown of God's creation, man made in God's own image, these lesser parts of creation dying as substitutes for greater parts of creation can never take away, can never fully pay for the sins of mankind. Dear friend, as you read this first sentence of this four-sentence sermon today, know this that mere religion cannot cleanse you from your sins. Mere religion cannot cleanse you from your sins. Pastor Tim Keller has said that you can run from God either by keeping His rules or by breaking them. You can be in total, uh, you, you can be completely separated from God by keeping all of His rules or by breaking all of them. Because you can keep all of the rules of God without relationship with Christ. And in so doing, all you're doing is putting on style with no substance. All you're doing is faking it until it breaks. You can be just as disobedient to God doing all the stuff of Christianity as you can by running from Him and doing all, the, uh, all of the opposite of that. Mere religion cannot cleanse you from your sins. If there is no real trust in your relationship and your religious deeds, if there's no faith in Jesus that motivates those things, all of those actions are empty. All of them are disobedient. All of them are unpleasing to God. Friend, am I speaking to you this morning? Have you been counting mere religion, ticking the boxes? Is your appeal to God for a clean conscience? Know this morning that 
relationship with God, real peace, real release from the guilt of sin, from brokenness in your life, will not come simply by doing good stuff of religion. It comes only through trusting Jesus. Which leads us to the second part of our passage today in the second sentence of that four-sentence sermon. That sanctification comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. Mere religion, or is it impossible for the blood of animals to remove sins? Real sanctification, real cleanliness of conscience comes instead through the sacrifice not of animals, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verses 5 through 7 set for us a contrast between what Christ accomplishes and, and what the previous sin sacrifices in the temple were actually able to effect. Whereas on the one hand, sin sacrifices are necessary because of a breach in God's law by an individual or by the people of Israel. On the other hand, Jesus comes to keep perfect obedience to God. Sacrifices are necessary because people are disobedient. Jesus comes to be perfectly obedient. Verses 5 through 7 cite uh, Psalm chapter 40 or Psalm number 40, verses 6 and 7, where they say, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The words of the psalmist here are applied to Jesus in his incarnation by the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews' purpose in taking, or or excuse me, Jesus' purpose in taking on human form is to do what God has desired for man for all time to obey. It should interest the reader, should interest us today, that God would say that he does not delight in sacrifices. Isn't that interesting? Wasn't it God who gave the law that said you should give sacrifices when there are sins? And now God is saying, I don't delight in those sacrifices? The purpose of sacrifice for sin, of offering an animal in the place of the sinner, was not first to make the worshiper pleasing to God. Instead, it was to serve as a necessary reminder of the consequences for sinful disobedience. My sins transferred symbolically to this animal who pays what I owe for my sin, death. In sacrificing an animal in their own place, the worshiper was to see with humility the grace of God in forgiving sins to those who humble themselves before Him, who repent, who turn from their sin, and who seek to do His will. What God wants is a relationship with human beings made in His image who delight to do His will, which is eminently delightful if only we should do it. It is interesting. There are several places, even in the Old Testament, even after the giving of the law, to, which instructed the people of Israel to give sacrifices of animals in place of their sin, explicit language of God's displeasure for sin sacrifices that are given apart from obedience. We see it in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, where Saul, the king of Israel, is preparing to go into war, and he wants to offer a sacrifice to God before he goes into battle. And so he's waiting for the prophet Samuel to come to uh, carry out the sacrifice. But Samuel delays in coming. So Saul takes it upon himself to make the sacrifice on his own, something that God had clearly commanded him not to do. So Saul offers his sacrifice, as he's unrightfully supposed to do, disobediently doing it. And then Samuel comes up, right after it seems that Saul has performed this ceremony, and he sees the disobedience of Saul, and Samuel says to him, "Does does God delight in sacrifices as much as he does in obedience? Behold, it is better to obey 
than to sacrifice. The same is said by David, the psalmist, in Psalm 51, verse 16, as he is repenting of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He confesses to God that what he knows that, that what God delights in more is a heart that is given in obedience and worship to him, more than sacrifices for ticking all of the religious boxes. The same is said also in Proverbs 21, verse 3. There is further explicit language about God's hatred for sacrifice that's offered in disobedience. God's hatred of uh, of sacrifices uh, that that are offered apart from repentance of sin. We see it in Jeremiah 7, verses 21 and 22. We see it in Hosea uh, 8, 11 and 13. We see it in Amos 5, verses 21 through 24, where there God says through his prophet Amos to the people of, uh, of, uh, of Israel, I hate your feasts. The ones that I gave you to commemorate. I hate your sacrifices, the ones that I told you to give. Why? Because every other part of your life is filled with injustice. It's filled with oppression of the poor. It's filled with hatred for your fellow man. You're only doing this stuff because you think it earns some credit with me, and I hate it, says God. The same comes in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, with similar language as that of Amos to the people of Israel, so also Isaiah God saying, take away from me the sacrifices that you would do. They, they, they are displeasing to me because they're not done out of an obedient heart. They're not done out of a heart that wants to know me, be in relationship with me, to worship me. Verses 8 through 10 of Hebrews 10 then applies that same psalm, Psalm 40, to the life and the purpose of Jesus. The author of Hebrews states that the psalm is really about Jesus and is really from Jesus. He takes this psalm and he puts it into the mouth of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes not only to offer sacrifices, but first to keep the perfect will of God without fail. He is obedient to the uttermost. And as verse 10 states, the will of God was to make clean, to sanctify, to cleanse the conscience though of those who were disobedient previously, through the obedient death of Jesus for sins. You see, our previous disobedience is covered over by Christ's obedience. Our sinfulness is covered over by His sinless death. And, through, and though Jesus came to put away sacrifices and to inaugurate the age of the new covenant and new covenant obedience, He still obediently offered His body as the final sacrifice to do away with all sacrifices. Real sanctification comes through those who trust in Jesus, who died as a sacrifice. Hear this this morning, friends. Jesus stood in your place to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He came to be obedient as you never could. He came to die a death that you deserve so that by his death, your sins would be removed from you. And you would be counted, as you are united to him by faith, righteous, obedient, sinless as he is. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that for our sake, God made him, made Christ, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have all been disobedient. We have all rebelled against God. We have all run away from him and also all sought to prove ourselves to him on our own, making our previous sin, all the more worse in his sight. But Jesus comes, God in flesh, to live a completely obedient life to the Father that we never could. 
to take our place on the cross, to die for our sins, to be raised from the dead so that any who would trust in him would not have to undo past disobedience, would not have to make up for past sins, but any who would come to him in faith would have those wiped away by his perfect righteousness. Know this this morning. Jesus stood in your place to do for you what you cannot do for yourself and what all of your religious law-keeping cannot accomplish for you. We see third, in verses 11 through 14, that Jesus' sacrifice makes perfect all whose sins he has forgiven. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Real sanctification is only, only comes through Jesus, and the sacrifice of Jesus makes perfect everyone whose sins he has forgiven. Here in verses 11 and 12, we see another contrast, a contrast between the ongoing work of priests who stand in the temple, working all the time, offering sacrifices day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, serving a covenant, the old covenant that has been made obsolete as Christ dies for sins. The contrast of priests who stand working to this day uh, in contrast to Christ who sits at the right hand of God, having completed his priestly work, never to repeat it. You see the contrast? Priests who stand and work at a covenant that is obsolete versus a priest who sits at the right hand of God, his work completely fulfilled. Verse 13 tells us that his session, when Jesus sits at the right hand of God, he sits as one who has completed the work of sacrifice for all time and is waiting until every enemy should be made a footstool for him. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And the time that he spends even now at the right hand of the Father until the end should come is time waited in God's grace for us to respond in the gospel until Christ should come and rule over everything physically even as he does now spiritually. Verse 14 explains that this is so, that Jesus is waiting to be made king over all things, even though he is king over all things, waiting for the consummation of his kingdom because his single sacrifice has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His superior, his unique, his once for all death for sins is sufficient for the permanent perfection of all who are presently being sanctified by him. This is why Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. Because he puts an end to our pursuit for holiness through animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice makes perfect all whose sins he has forgiven. He is the priest that doesn't need to do any more work because the task is finished. In light of this, dear friend, I invite you to find spiritual rest in Jesus. Find spiritual rest in Jesus. His sacrifice makes perfect all those whose sins he has forgiven. Have you come to him for forgiveness of sins? If yes, then good. Find rest in him. Find spiritual rest in him. Isn't it odd how you can exert a massive amount of energy at your job and feel exhausted and burnt out, and on the other hand, expend the same amount of energy or more hiking up a mountain and feel energized and fulfilled? How is it that working hard at hiking or biking or gardening or whatever it might be, how is it that working hard at something you enjoy can actually be restful? It is because we do it out of enjoyment and delight for the end result. 
We, we delight in the accomplishment of hiking up the mountain. We delight in the accomplishment of harvesting from our gardens at home. We delight in the accomplishment of putting together that model airplane or whatever it may be that we are investing massive amounts of hours in. Listen, because Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary for you to be right with God, you can stand confidently before Him. You can find rest in Him because He has done all that is necessary that you could not do. He has been obedient in your place, not so that you live a life of obedience. You work hard at obeying Jesus in order to be right with God, but no, you work hard at obedience out of delight for being made right with God. His sacrifice makes perfect all whose sins he has forgiven. And so our every moment of worship, our every act of obedience to him, the songs that we sing, the way that we pray, the times that we sit in silence before God as we study his word and apply it to our lives, the the, the work that we do in investing ourselves to help others follow Jesus more faithfully as disciples of him, this is all life-giving. This is all restful because we're not doing it in order to be made right with God. We do all of these things out of joy for having already been made right with him in Christ. The fourth and final sentence of our four-sentence sermon today is this. comes to us from verse 18, which says, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Final statement this morning is that because sins are forgiven in Jesus, sacrifices are no longer necessary. Because sins are forgiven in Jesus, animal sacrifices are no longer necessary for forgiveness. The author of Hebrews concludes in these last verses, uh, 15 through 18, with a, uh, another uh, citation of Jeremiah 31 and that promise of a new covenant that is coming. He applies it to the Holy Spirit. All of Scripture is inspired by God. All of it is said by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. In Jeremiah 31, the author of Hebrews says, because he says, first of all, this is the covenant that I'll make with you after those days. I'll put my laws on their heart, write them on their minds. After that, he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The certain promise of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit says, and the author of Hebrews picks up for us, the certain promise of the new covenant brought about by Jesus is the total removal of sins, the total removal of guilt, the total removal of your responsibility for your past disobedience before God. Jesus has paid it, removes it for all of those who are members of this new covenant, for all who come to Jesus by faith, turning from sin, trusting in Him, as simple as that. You become a member of this new covenant. Your sins are remembered no more. And so then, because Jesus is the perfectly obedient, perfectly self-given sacrifice for sinners, real forgiveness, not just a covering over of your sin, but a real expiation, a real sending away of your sins from your account is realized in Christ. And so those sin offerings that remind us of sin over and over, year after year, those are all done away with. Because God has remembered our sins no more. And neither does He desire for us to take part in religious actions that only remind us of our sin. Listen, because of this reality that there's real forgiveness of sins in Jesus, dear friend, you are made free in Christ to live in life-giving obedience to Him. 
you are made free to live in life-giving obedience to Jesus. How many times have we said to each other in this place that you can stop trying to prove yourself to God? I'll say it again this morning. You can stop trying to prove yourself to God. My very dear brothers and sisters, precious friends who are here this morning, God looks upon all those who have given themselves in trust to his perfect son, Jesus, with nothing less than all of his divine pleasure and acceptance. Do you know that today? Do you need to be reminded of that today? That in Christ, God is delighted with you? That in Jesus, God is pleased with you? And not because of what you have done or because of what you are doing or because of what you will do tomorrow, but because of what Christ has accomplished for you. You are delightful to him. You are pleasing to him. You are a joy to your Father in heaven if you come to him through his Son, Jesus, who is perfectly obedient in your place who died on the cross so that you would not have to do religious things week after week, sitting in worship, giving a tithe, showing up at Bible study as a reminder of the sins that you still have to atone for. No, but that so you can worship with the church family, so you can give out of God's provision to yourself, so that you can dive into his word with others out of freedom to be obedient to him. AstroTurf is all style and no substance. It promises all the look and feel of grass without any of the maintenance. But in reality, I kind of like mowing my lawn. I kind of like aerating it and fertilizing it and putting that work into it. Not because my lawn is dead. I enjoy doing it because it's alive. I enjoy mowing my lawn because it's growing. There's life there. And I know that as I take care of that lawn that is alive, that is growing, that there's more pleasure that will come from it as my children play on it and as I just bask in the beauty of that green swath in my backyard. It's not a swath, it's a square, but all the same. There is a delight in doing things that give us joy because there's life there. Friends, God does not design your obedience to him as a Christian following Christ. He doesn't design it to be a drudgery. He designs it to be a delight. And friend, if you're looking at your worship with the family of faith, if you're looking at your Bible study, if you're looking at your prayer time day to day as drudgery, as something that is life-taking, not life-giving, could it be that you have not realized Jesus Christ as your Savior who gave his obedient life so that you can live in delightful obedience to him? Could it be that your perspective on all the things that you're doing is wrong, is backwards, that you're still trying to prove yourself to God, you're still trying to atone for sins that you have committed by doing these religious things, by being an astroturf Christian? Friend, I invite you to embrace life-giving obedience today. Not by doing more, not by trying harder, but by doing all the things that as a Christian we know we ought to do, that God calls us to do, from the perspective of knowing that Christ in his death on the cross has made us free to do this. 
worshiping together, studying the Bible, spending time in prayer, discipling one another is like mowing the lawn. It's a good thing because there's life there. It's a delight to do it because as we do, it keeps growing. We know we're adding to the health that is already there. We're not trying to bring dead things to life. We're simply taking care of that which is already alive and growing. But friend, we cannot do this apart from trust in Jesus. We cannot do this apart from faith in Christ who has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Jesus does what the law could not. He was perfectly obedient so that you could delight in doing God's will not to prove yourself to him, but out of joyful, life-giving obedience to Christ, your great high priest who saved you. Friend, if you have any question about what it means to know Jesus this way, to obey him in a way that is life-giving, not life-taking, to have your sins forgiven, to have a clear conscience, if you have any concern, any question about that whatsoever today, please don't leave this place without asking and getting answers to those questions. Come speak with me after we dismiss. I meet you outside, pull, we can walk off to the side if we need to and talk about your life with Christ, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow him, how you can have your sins forgiven. But don't leave here today without having those questions answered. If you came as a guest of somebody else, ask them on the drive home or as you're out to lunch later. Seek to be made right with Christ so that you can live in life-giving obedience to him. Let's pray together.